Hello and welcome to this week's CIO update. Since we last spoke, we've had another week of relatively stable markets, with the notable exception of oil, of which more later. I'm Richard Edgar and I'm joined via video conference by Fidelis' Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Richard. Andrew, before we get to markets, I'd like to kick off by asking you about how you've adapted to working from home full time. What have you changed about the room I can see behind you uh, to make it possible to, to spend however many hours a day you are behind the uh, the desk? So two meaningful things, really, Richard, that uh, one is um, had to switch a chair into uh, here to make it a little bit more comfortable to sit for hours on end. And secondly, to uh, get my iPad for the various uh, Zoom meetings that um, a few books come in very handy and uh, just to get that uh, level up to the right eye line. High tech uh, ad- adaptations to the uh, to the video, but we appreciate it. So thank you very much indeed. Um, it's now about a month and a half since markets started that record tumble. I always ask you a where are we now type of question. Um, have things settled into a bit, bit of a pattern now, uh, accepting all, of course, which we'll come to in a minute? So I think that we've um, seen you know, more of the um, uh, sort of, you know, benign environment um, playing out. But it's interesting to note that as we went into the Easter weekend, we most probably a degree of um, short covering, a little bit more um, optimism, which has um, rolled over in that uh, markets have stayed near the, uh, the higher levels that we saw them. But I think just uh, a few signs that... Um, we're not uh, you know, managing to make too much um, you know, headway here as uh, uh, the markets start to, uh, to have to contend with the fact that uh, we seem to have found a little bit of a flaw to where um, uh, volatility is to uh, some of the way in which the liquidity from the central banks is getting through the system. Um, you know, there's a little bit of stickiness. We're seeing that more in sterling and uh, euros just at uh, the moment. Um, and so I think, again, that um, you know, the signals we've spoken about many times improve substantially from those um, dark days uh, going through the middle of March, um, but have now shown signs of just stabilising at these slightly higher levels um, than we had uh, before the, the crisis uh, begun. Is that giving you some breathing space then to start reflecting some of the broader questions uh, about how the economy and how markets are going to um, develop. We've discussed um, inflation before uh, in this podcast, and I'm wondering, um, how's your thinking developing around that? Yes, we have. And I think it's, again, just um, when you think about the size of the intervention that we've seen um, uh, you know, on the, the fiscal front, but especially from monetary authorities, the, the term of unlimited and literally as we come on to the podcast uh, today that we've had um, a leak from uh, the Nikkei uh, newspaper saying that um, the Bank of Japan are considering unlimited bond buying again, um, that you have this uh, you know, enormous stored up um, uh, sort of liquidity that um, uh, you know, many are viewing as a future risk around how that feeds its way through the system and could it um, you know, have inflationary consequences. I-, I think it's still too early for that, partly because I think that you know, we have the deflationary impact of this drop in income from the uh, massive decline in activity through the rolling uh, lockdown process that we've seen across the world. Um, and then also the, the degree to which uh, you know, we get phased back into different uh, levels of, uh, of activity. So I, I used the, um, the sort of uh, you know, picture before of uh, this very large hole that we can't really see the bottom of that's being filled in through the intervention, especially on the fiscal front. I think that um, we still have to get a better handle on, on that, but it's still very deflationary in the short term. 
The risk is that once we start to get activity rolling again, once we start to see, uh, you know, hopefully, more signs of um, uh, more distinct growth being now to, to be generated, and also the amount of supply destruction that uh, you'll see through production of certain uh, materials that will have uh, declined quite substantially, you know, will we see as demand picks up again that that money starts to feed through the system and create uh, you know, more inflationary pressures? I think that you've got to believe that the chances are, are there, but I think it's the time horizon, i.e. it's going to come later than any time you know, within the near future that will be impacting um, uh, you know, market expectations um, uh, as yet. So when is the, uh, the period that you're thinking that it might start to, to appear? So I think that still that's got to come after we've seen um, you know, a recovery in economies, uh, a return to higher levels of activity um, and more sustained levels of activity. Um, and that most probably means that we're looking out at the very least into uh, the sort of uh, you know, 21 into 22, maybe even to 2023, rather than necessarily for this year or um, you know, early into 2021. So I think it's still got time to develop. In reality, that most probably is still um, uh, you know, very optimistic for generating inflation because um, uh, you know, we'll need to have pretty sustained levels of growth and activity. So uh, you know, I tend to think it will come somewhat later. We have to think about other things first, which will be still currently how much this sort of destruction of um, uh, demand is, is uh, ultimately turned around and replaced and we get activity back um, beyond the, the sort of deflationary forces at the moment. And also the degree um, that uh, you know, we will find that the changes in how we operate, what that means for uh, the types of um, activity uh, you know, are likely to um, uh, you know, not lead to an immediate uh, flow through into those you know, sort of inflationary um, pressures. So, again, I, I think it's something that you know, should be on the radar screen, but on the outside of it um, and watching for it to gradually move in. But that's going to take you know, quarters into years, not uh, weeks into months. Okay, well, to mix metaphors, then we're going to put inflation onto the back burner uh, for now. And um, you, you talked about demand destruction, and I think that links us nicely onto um, the other big story of the week, which of course was um, oil prices, which um, uh, you know talk about deflationary um, uh, measures when they went into uh, negative territory. Now it's been dismissed by many as a technical quirk, but how much store do you lay by the oil price? So I find that hard to believe that you can just put it down to um, technical consideration when those technical considerations are being driven by supply demand. And uh, the fact that, yes, we've seen enormous uh, supply. It's been a supply shock we've touched on before, but also that you know, we've seen um, uh, you know, the demand shock uh, level, i.e. that uh, you know, for that supply, that at the same time, you've then seen um, this massive uh, decline in demand. I mean, one of the things that I would point to and uh, uh, you know, has been really quite notable is that uh, you know, when you look at car use, when you look at in the US, especially gasoline um, sales that have occurred, you know, we looked at numbers across some of the major cities um, going through to uh, the middle of March and you'd already seen significant declines in usage. So in some of the larger cities, as much as uh, 20, 25 percent down, obviously that's likely to have got worse. Um, and so, you know, when you look around um, you know, Europe as well as the US and see, you know, just the way in which um, the, that uh, demand uh, profile will have declined, I think that what the, you know, the oil price is telling you that, um, one, 
obviously competition for storage, and that's why we saw um, uh, you know the, the decline in physical prices. And I think it's important to bear in mind that you know, um, uh, I would call out um, uh, Tom Robinson and uh, Paul Gooden for the for the excellent work that they have uh, have done and that they highlighted. Um, well, that, these are analysts at Fidelity who've been looking at the oil market. Yes, that uh, and they um, you know had, uh, actually provided some great insights in recent weeks and, and really been highlighting that um, uh, you know where the physical market was in the US. Um, where physical markets were generally, because obviously it's not one oil price, even though we get fixated um, uh, in looking um, uh, over to the, the US, that um, obviously there are many different prices around the world. But the decline seen there in the physical market, the risk that meant, but also what it was telling us about storage and the fact that the amount of supply and the drop in demand uh, was meaning that um, uh, you know, all of that's why I have to, uh, to find somewhere to be stored. And that was then bubbled over into the um, considerations we saw as the the May contract um, for the WTI uh, was being rolled over uh, into um, the June contract. That that was the technical bit. But um, obviously, as you're saying, it does reflect a very real drop in demand. Does this mean that uh, there is some complacency on the part of those who are just dismissing it as as, as a technical wobble? To be blunt, yes. When you think about the the fact that the lack of travelling that's been taking place, what that means through the different um, parts of the um, uh, you know oil distillates and uh, especially for gasoline um, directly in the US, you know it's given us a signal into just how significant the demand decline has been, and also a degree of um, you know the challenge as we go through this. Uh, uh, and to my point earlier on, coming back to to link into uh, inflation that. Um, you know, you will see uh, you know, destruction of production. You will see supply levels going down. So there is a chance at a later point. But um, you know, the first thing we want to do is, is to unwind that massive drop in demand, and that has to uh, be something that um, uh, you know we see uh, develop. And that's obviously one of the things that we closely monitor to see how quickly that comes back and in what ways it comes back as well to give us insights towards sectors and companies. Um, you know, uh, for the future. But if, if there is a chance then of equilibrium returning into that market, very briefly, where would you expect the price of oil to settle? <laughs> uh, that, uh, so I think that um, uh, the chances of us seeing, uh, you know, a significant rebound that's, that's sustained is, is too early through the course of the, uh, the, the next few weeks, especially. Um, so, you know, it still look that even though we've seen a, um, uh, you know, a rebound and, and this last couple of days, um, obviously, the markets uh, trade somewhat better, um, that it's going to be challenged to be able to get back towards the $25, $30 um, a barrel that we were looking at uh, uh, you know, recently. Um, I think that when you look further out, the amount of uh, supply um, that is gradually being taken back by production going down, you know, will start to impact and that means that most probably, again, that when we look towards 2021, you can start thinking about um, you know, prices that can be up to and even beyond um, potentially $30 a barrel again. But you've got to see those um, signs of the supply being absorbed, of production declining significantly, and then you know, some profile of demand um, you know, coming back as activity picks up. A bit more normality, we hope, uh, but but not yet. Okay, I've got uh, time for just one small question right at the end, Andrew. What's keeping you up at night? Oh, um, that's an interesting one. That um, <laughs> I suppose mainly that um, uh, you know, there's a, there's 
most probably a couple of things. One that um, uh, more directly in, in uh, you know, something we've touched on before is is the process of the sort of solvency and recapitalization that lies ahead um, and how this plays out um, to support um, uh, you know, activity. And if I'm honest, for, for our you know, security selection and our portfolio exposures that um, how these things play back to either, um, uh, you know, again, the, the reality is that there could be, you know, mistakes despite all of the intervention um, and amazing moves by the authorities that, uh, uh, you know, you could still signs where there are, uh, you know, sort of chain effects running through forms of default and failure to get this, uh, you know, liquidity into the right hands and that rolling over into, um uh, you know, more dramatic um, problems that just impacts again onto demand and just lowers confidence as we're trying to get um, beyond the lockdown uh, process in the, the weeks ahead. And then maybe one that is, um, uh, you know, I think it's challenging because it's not so visible uh, today is what are the knock-on effects into the economy that feed into private companies um, into their debt refinancing um, processes, their uh, you know, recapitalization. How, what does this mean as well for, for investors um, in terms of uh, you know, valuations? I, I sort of fear there's a degree where you know, we've seen some um, very significant institutional investors, I think very sensibly, take a haircut on some of their exposures to try and build in a more realistic picture when they think about their strategic asset allocation and, and their weightings within there. Um, but I think the, the challenge is that some of these uh, markdowns will be quite considerable um, and some of the visibility around it will still take uh, you know, months rather than um, days or weeks. And that could be quite a challenge as um, uh, investors start to think about, one, allocating into space, but also how they manage um, their exposures and what it means for their portfolios. And obviously the feedback loop into uh, economic activity as well again. I think you've given us um, plenty there for um, many more nights of contemplation. So thank you very much, Andrew. That brings us to at the end of this CIO update. You can hear more from Fidelity's investment team on the coronavirus crisis, market response and investment implications on both our Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channels. Just search for those titles in your podcast app. And you can read all of the latest thinking online at fidelityinstitutional.com. The producer today was Charlie Humphreys with production support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us here at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.